Thank you, Kai. Let us pray. Good and gracious God, we thank you for this opportunity to worship you again in spirit and in truth. We thank you for the ability to share our lives with one another, to be strengthened and encouraged by your word and the sacrament of your supper. We now lay claim to your promise in scripture, which says, as the rain and the snow fall from heaven and do not return there, but rather water the ground, causing it to sprout forth and grow, <clears throat> so shall your word be, which comes down on us from on high. It never returns to you empty or void, but it always accomplishes that which you purpose and succeeds in the very thing for which you sent it. Remind us once again, dear Lord, this day of who we are and whose we are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. My sermon text for today is the gospel lesson, a rather lengthy story. John chapter 4, verses 5 through 42. It is the famous story of the Samaritan woman by the well. My sermon title for this morning is The Business Route, Not the Bypass. The Business Route, Not the Bypass. What a story today's gospel lesson is. In this Women's History Month of March, you could do a lot worse than engaging this profound encounter of Jesus and the Samaritan woman by the well. This famous and eventful account occurs only here in John's Gospel, intriguingly, and nowhere else among the other three, namely Matthew, Mark, or Luke. As this text opens, Jesus has departed Judea in the south and is heading back home to Galilee in the north, both regions populated by his people, the Jews. But in between the two was a region known as Samaria, which was populated by Samaritans, a mixed-race people who were at odds with the Jews for varied reasons, too many and complex to delve into here. But suffice it to say that there was a deep and abiding mutual animosity between the groups. When you have two different racial or ethnic groups of people with different religious and cultural customs living in such close proximity, it comes as no surprise that tensions would flare and conflicts arise. It seems to be human nature to define oneself and one's people over and against other types of people, inevitably cherishing one's own background and identity while holding the other, quote unquote, in disdain. Jesus theoretically could have avoided Samaria entirely on his way back home to Galilee, taking a more circuitous route, but instead he chooses to or feels compelled to go right through Samaria. The preceding words to the opening of our text this morning read, Jesus left Judea and started back to Galilee, but he had to go through Samaria. But he had to go through Samaria. He took the business route home, as it were, instead of the bypass. And that's good news indeed, not only for these ancient Samaritans, but also for us today in ways that we will hopefully soon acknowledge. For a gospel like John's, which so often emphasizes Jesus' divinity over and beyond his humanity, there are striking references to his humanity here to his being susceptible to the weaknesses and needs of human flesh. One such plaintive instance occurs in verse 6, which sets the scene for this entire encounter. Jesus, tired out by his journey, was sitting by the well. Personally, I prefer the older translation here. Jesus 
wearied as he was with his journey, sat down beside the well. That's a whole sermon right there, isn't it? Jesus is wearied with his journey. In our weariness, weariness is a loaded, powerful word. We have a God who took on human flesh and became personally acquainted with our lot in life of feeling weary. A superhuman Messiah who can perform miracles of exorcism and healing and deliverance and multiplying loaves and fish to feed multitudes and turning water into wine and even raising the dead is acquainted with long depleting journeys knows what it's like to have the weight of the world on one's shoulders knows what it's like to have to stop and sit down and rest because he is weary it is the scripture informs us about noon. It is an unusual time of the day for a woman to come to the city well to draw water. Normally the women would arrive early in the morning or perhaps later around dusk in part to avoid the heat of the day. And during that time of course they would socialize, talk with one another and enjoy the friendship and camaraderie of this necessary daily chore. Our woman here seems to be an outcast. She is not part of the group gathering at the prescribed time. Whether she has self-segregated or whether she has been made to feel unwelcome is up for debate. Regardless, the reason will quickly become apparent. The following encounter is ripe with significance. A weary woman meets a weary man. A thirsty woman meets a thirsty man. A lonely woman meets a man who is alone, whose disciples have gone to the city on an errand. A Samaritan meets a Jew. Jesus crosses the social barrier first by asking her for a drink of water. This perplexes her. And she is shocked, taken aback. You can almost hear the hesitancy in her voice, eyes looking skittishly around. How is it that you... A Jew ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria. The text then makes clear, Jews do not share things in common with Samaritans. You know, some social boundaries you just don't cross, particularly involving race, ethnicity, and religion, all of which are at play here because society frowns upon it and then ostracizes the transgressors. So there's a lot of risk going on here in this text, in this narrative, my friends. Maybe Jesus would have been better off taking the bypass around, not the business route through. Jesus then, in effect, says that she should be asking him for a drink of water, to which she responds that he has no bucket and the well is deep. He then speaks of something called living water, differentiating it from the well water which she came to draw, by saying that her water only quenches and refreshes temporarily, fleetingly, while his living water does so permanently, becoming actually a spring of water within someone gushing up to eternal life. In making such a distinction, Jesus is distinguishing between what feeds and nourishes and satisfies permanently versus temporarily. And implicitly then, he critiques our human preference for and our non-stop chasing after the latter. 
what is temporary. In only two more chapters, he will famously exclaim, Do not labor for the food which perishes, but rather for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. All of us are well acquainted with the empty and hollow nature of many of our life's pursuits. Money doesn't bring security. Possessions don't bring satisfaction. Relationships don't last. Friendships fail. Marriages don't yield lifelong happiness. Jobs don't bring joy or fulfillment. Families yield turmoil and disappointment. We can work and work and work for years and years and years and still feel empty, my friends. We can let that bucket down that well every day of our weary, lonely lives and be just as thirsty the following day as we were the previous. And so we, like this woman, respond desperately and pleadingly in verse 5, Sir, give us this water so that we may never be thirsty or have to keep coming here to draw it. Jesus, give us fulfillment, give us satisfaction, give us permanence, give us eternity. So Jesus says, go, call your husband and come back. She responds, I have no husband. Is this an assertion of independence? I have no husband. Or of desertion? I have no husband. Or both. And now the underlying reason for her isolation, whether self-imposed or communally imposed, becomes clear. Jesus says, you're right. You've had five husbands. The one you're with now is not your husband, so you are telling the truth. Sir, this woman responds, I see that you are a prophet. And then a very strange, troubling twist occurs, at least to me. We Samaritans worship here on this mountain, she says, referring to nearby Mount Gerizim. But you, Jews, say the place people ought to worship is on Mount Zion in Jerusalem. Say what? Her realization that he is a prophet is followed immediately by her asking him to settle rival religious claims. It is a complete deflection away from her sin and brokenness. It is a deliberate diversion away from her guilt and shame. You are right. You've had five husbands and are not married to the one you're with now. Sir, you're a prophet. Um, what do you think? Should we worship here or worship in Jerusalem? That's like confronting someone on alcohol or drug abuse and them saying, Wow, you got me. Whom do you like? Duke or Carolina or State? The Lakers or the Celtics? It's like addressing someone's negative cycles of dysfunction and them admitting it, saying, hey, you're pretty perceptive. Now, how do you perceive the Second Amendment or the immigration issue? Jesus took the business route straight to Samaria, straight to Sychar, straight to this woman, straight to her issue, not the bypass around all of them, while this woman takes the bypass around her path around her five failed marriages, around her pain and ostracism, around her humiliation and low self-esteem, she exits off the business route. Why, I wonder? Because it would hurt too much. Because there's too much guilt and shame. 
she already feels like a failure. She already has to come to the well at noon, deliberately avoiding all those who inevitably think the worst about her. No one plans to get married five or six times. Why would she marry this fellow she's with now? To invite further belittling gossip on her best efforts? It's so much easier for us as human beings to withdraw, to avoid, to circle the wagons, to crawl under a rock and just not deal with the microscope, the likes of which Jesus carries, and really only reveals what we already know, that we are a failure. So let's talk instead about whether we should worship in Samaria or Jerusalem. Talk about something non-threatening. Should it, should it be traditional liturgy or contemporary praise and worship? High church or low church? Hymns or gospel music? Formal or informal? Drums and guitars or handbells and an organ? 9 a.m. Sunday morning worship or 11 a.m. Sunday morning worship? The last thing I want to talk about or even reflect on at all is the business route through my own heart, my own sin, my own moral failures, whatever they may be. So I opt for the bypass around all of that so I can be distracted by matters of secondary importance. So how does Jesus respond to this woman's deflection, sidestepping, spiritual dodgeball? He replies, in essence, doesn't matter. Doesn't matter a whit, Samaria or Jerusalem. What does matter instead is not where you worship, but how you worship. True worshipers, he said, worship God in spirit and in truth. God is a spirit, and so those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Jesus, Jesus refuses to take the bait of pronouncing judgment on, in his eyes, such an unimportant dispute. Instead, he remains focused on what is life-giving and ultimately most important, worshiping God in spirit and in truth. Now, that means different things to different people, depending on how you define spirit and how you define truth. But part of what that means, I believe, is taking the business route and not the bypass and allowing God to take the business route with you, not the bypass. The business route is that God sees your sin and knows it. He is well aware of your missteps and your lapses. And He loves you anyway. He forgives you your sins and frees you from their grip and claim. God loves you unconditionally. He wants you to live and love and hope and dream unhindered and unencumbered by guilt, shame, and the judgments of others. The business route, my friends, as always, is that at the right time, Christ died for the weak and the ungodly. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If the Son sets you free, you shall be free indeed. Since all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, all are like or justified by His grace as a gift. 
God's anger is for but a moment. God's favor lasts a lifetime. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And let him who is without sin be the first one to cast a stone. That is the business rounds. Interestingly enough, neither Jesus nor this Samaritan woman gets what they came for in this story. The weary and fatigued Jesus never gets his drink of water, nor food, apparently. This woman leaves her water jar in verse 28 and returns to the city without that, which was the purpose of her journey in the first place. But they both have gained so much more. She has gained him. And he has gained A whole town converts because of one forgiven sinner. She is convicted of her sin and then forgiven she is freed of its burden because of her testimony. A testimony no doubt greeted initially with skepticism and cynicism on the part of townsfolk from whom she was estranged. Many came to believe. And then they go from believing in Jesus because of her testimony to their own experience of him. Faith, my friends, often starts out as a second-hand story, but it can quickly become a first-hand discovery. I had heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, Job said to God at the end of his book, but now my own eye sees thee. In just a couple of years from this text, this Jesus, who is weary and thirsty about noon, will once again have a day where it will be about noon. And he will say again, ironically, I thirst. He will be on the cross. And do you know why? He will still be taking the business route. He will not bypass or avoid suffering and rejection. But no, he will journey straight through it. He will not bypass Judas's denial and Peter, Judas's betrayal and Peter's denial, but he will journey through the heart of it. He will take the business route straight through Annas and Caiaphas's Sanhedrin, Herod's questioning, and Pilate's judgment seat. He will not bypass Gethsemane's foreboding garden, but will take the business route straight through a prayer of blood and sweat and anguish whose tortured words were, Father, if possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will but thine be done. He will not bypass, my friends, being whipped and scourged, mocked and taunted, but he will take the business route through Golgotha's windswept hill and Calvary's murderous mount. He will not duck nor dodge the crown of thorns, the nails driven through his wrists and feet, the sword thrust through his side, and the opportunity to forgive precisely the ones who did it. He will not take the bypass route of coming down from the cross and calling 12 legions of angels to wreak vengeance upon his enemies. No, he took the business route straight through a brutally suffocating and slow death. And just like the verse prior to our text this morning says, but he had to go through Samaria, he had to go through Isaiah 53. He was despised and rejected by people. A man of sorrows, well acquainted with grief. He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquity. 
Upon Him was the chastisement that made us whole, and with His stripes we are healed. He had to go through Samaria just as assuredly as He had to go through sacrificing His own life. He had to go through Sychar just as He had to go through death so that He might destroy Him who has the power of death. And just like he went through Sicker Samaria for that one unnamed woman, so too is he going through Raleigh, North Carolina this morning for you and for me. He had to go through it because of his great and overwhelming and undying love for us. But the story does not end there. He had to go through death in order to be resurrected. He had to go through burial in order to be raised to new life. He had to go through that sealed off tomb in order that it might one day be known as the empty tomb. He had to go ascend to heaven to take his seat at the right hand of his father. He had to sit there in order still to intercede for us now. He had to go away so that the comforter and the Holy Spirit might come. He had to take the business route because that's where we were. And he had to come get us and he did. Praise God. The business route, not the bypass. Amen.